Good evening, everyone. It's great to have you here this evening. If you're new to church, just so you know that um, we have this brilliant course called Alpha, uh, and it just starts on Wednesday. It's just started, I think, the first one on Wednesday, but week two is always the best week to join. So if you're kind of curious about what you're experiencing tonight, and you're thinking, wow, this is kind of weird, slash exciting, slash mysterious, uh, then we'd love you to do Alpha. And Tim, uh, the vicar here, actually leads that online. So it's kind of, it's totally non-cringe. It's a great space to ask questions you might have about faith. And you can just dial into that uh, this Wednesday night and just chat to Tim afterwards if you'd like to do that. We're going to read tonight from 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 to 5, if you want to follow on your device. It says this, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. For just as the sufferings of Christ flow over into our lives, so also through Christ our comfort overflows. Well, last week, Tim brilliantly illustrated the tension between the need for both the rescuer uh, to be uh, fully uh, above the water and fully invested in the water in order that the stranded surfer uh, could uh, be saved. And I think, actually, I've been a Christian for a long time and a Christian leader for a long time. I don't think I've, I've had such a, a clear analogy for the necessity of a gospel of holiness and presence. And I think it's just a brilliant illustration. So the helicopter hovering overhead. Now, if that's God's holiness, you know, that's essential because actually we cannot be rescued from the water itself if we're in the water. So God is other, and yet the helicopter sent out this wire with a rescuer attached, and that rescuer needs to get fully into the water in order to save the stranded surfer in the wind and waves. So God has to be both other and also with. And God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to, to, to get into the waters for our sake, to embrace us and hold us. I was chatting to a friend at church this morning. He said, you know, I love that picture. I, I just feel like I'm always still in the water, but I just have this sense that, that kind of Jesus is holding me and I'm kind of on the harness line. And I don't know if I'm going to get out of the water this side of heaven, but I kind of, I feel safe in the storm. And I thought, that's brilliant. That's what we need to know. And so if we think about the kind of complete Jesus, the complete rescue, God is holy and other. If he wasn't, he wouldn't be able to rescue us. He, he would just be in the water looking out for a helicopter himself. But, but he also has to be near because otherwise he's just looking over us and kind of going, I'm holy and you're other and there's no way in which we can connect. And that's why the Christian gospel is so unique. Because God isn't just some sort of far-off God who kind of waves at us from a distance and says, yeah, you're all lost and there's nothing I can do about it. He's a God who's still holy and yet is present with us. We're doing this little series looking at the complete Jesus, in part through the relief of some of the heresies of old. Heresies were, were kind of interesting diversions from the true gospel. Now, heresies, you probably get the inference from the word, they're not great. But the good thing to know about heretics is that heretics weren't really out there to try and destroy the Christian faith. They weren't anti-Christian. Uh, they weren't non-believers in a traditional sense of the word. They, they were people who were seriously well-meaning, and many of them were extremely committed to the cause. Some of them even lost their lives for the sake of the cause. But they were misguided. And when you come down to it, if you're kind of going on a great adventure, 
Now, I'm one of those classic confident walkers. You know, yeah, it's over here. I have you know, no orienteering skills whatsoever. Yeah, I'm sure it's this way, guys. You know, I've got lots of enthusiasm, lots of confidence, but just never follow me. It doesn't matter how like earnest I am or you know how how sort of enthused I am about the journey, but you know it's not advisable because I just don't know exactly where I'm going. I had the embarrassment of being an outdoor instructor in North Wales in my gap year, and I can do some things pretty well when it comes to outdoor sports, but orienteering is totally lost on me. But you know, you've got lots of 12-year-olds following around the mountainside. You've got to look like you know what you're doing. But I just missed that compass reading exercise that they did in GCSE geography, and somehow I'm always going off course. I could never work out how true north and map north correlated. Someone could maybe explain that to me at the end of the service tonight. So I was always going off randomly, hoping that I could guess where they would leave those funny clips that you clip the card with. Oh, they've probably hidden one over there. And I'd always rock up to the bus half an hour after all the boys had already completed the course and go, oh yeah, just checking everyone was safe. Just making sure everyone's like safely on the bus. I was totally not. I was just rambling around the mountainside trying to find these things, even following boys who I thought could map read better than me from a distance to make sure they were safe. You know, it's all well and good like being earnest about what you believe, but if what you believe isn't actually true, then actually your earnestness counts for nothing. The trouble with the heretics is they were seriously earnest about what they believed, but actually they were off course. And you can kind of sometimes understand why people go off course. It it makes sense if you track back and go, oh, I can kind of see the decision there. I saw the big M, golden arches, you felt hungry, you thought I'm going to go in that direction. It all makes sense now to me why you went off course. Docetism, which was what we're looking at tonight, Um, comes from the Greek dokeo, which simply means an apparition or a semblance. It means a look like. Oh yeah, it's it's a look like. Jesus kind of looks like a human, but there's no way that he could possibly be a human. And so the docetists effectively went around saying, look, God is holy and we are not holy. The docetists had a pretty good estimation of the human character. They were like, oh, you know, we are not good. Like, we, have, we are broken. And docetists were kind of pretty self-effacing. They were like, you know, how could God really be human? Because look at me, I'm a mess. Like, really, what, could, what good could God be if he could be human? Because surely he's of no earthly good. Because if he was, he would have stayed in heaven. And so Jesus, who clearly was God, because he walked amongst us and performed these incredible miracles and made this incredible sacrifice, couldn't have actually been really human. You can kind of see how they got there. It's like they're saying, you know, Jesus is too good to be true, too good to be truly human. They weren't saying Jesus didn't exist or that Jesus didn't perform all these different miracles, or even that Jesus didn't even die in some sort of supernatural apparition-like way. But they hadn't really thought through the realities of what they were saying. There's two sorts of docetism. There's Marconianism, which suggests that Jesus was so divine, it was impossible for him to be human, as I've said. And there was also a secondary version that suggested that Jesus was human but Christ was a strange, imposing power that dwelled within Jesus. And you could actually separate out the Jesus, who was the carpenter from Nazareth, and then the Christ bit, which was this sort of magical force that inhabited Jesus' body, like one of the Alien Trilogy films, and then came out, you know, at the last minute when there was any sort of threat or risk. 
Uh, and that idea that Jesus was a, either a host or a mirage you know, permeated, if you like, uh, the fourth and fifth uh, centuries. Now, I grew up on Superman, the original. I still think it's the best. Um, it was pretty loose special effects-wise. If you watch it back now, you're like, ooh, what is that cardboard I see in the background? Or that polystyrene foam you've made kryptonite out of? You know, it's really like, it's so basic. It's, you know, it's, it's really pretty ropey, but I'd still choose it over Marvel's Avengers Endgame, whatever one you happen to be watching these days. The fact is that Christopher Reeve, the original Superman actor, couldn't really hide his humanity. You know, they tried really hard. Oh, yeah, look, Christopher, let's wire you up like that and just, just have your red pants on and your cape and cover the wire and no one will notice. You know, you can imagine the conversations they were having. This was like really like cutting edge, new cinema. Like, I'm sure we can make it look like you're really flying. We're going to blow wind in this direction and like it will look great. And there's something about him that, that meant, you, you know, you couldn't really get away from the fact that he was just really, really human and is actually a really lovely guy. Today, I'd suggest, although many of you would disagree, that superhero movies have moved so far beyond the human story that it's actually really hard to connect. As an empath, I certainly feel that. I feel like, yeah, I kind of, I get the Thor thing, you know, and, and everything, and he's like strong and everything, the hammer, it's all good, but I just don't really like him. I just, I'm like, yeah, it's just sort of a robot, really. It's not the acting, it's just the whole idea of the thing. And then, you, you know, you've got all these, like, X-Men characters, and, and you're looking for, like, the human. And then they just, you know, everything kind of bobbles around, and they get injured, and then the bullet falls out of their chest, and their, their skin melds back together again. You're going, but so far beyond human, how can I really connect? It's a bit like watching a nature program about the behavior of a colony of rare species for which you only have mild affection. That's me. <laughs> It's a really great way of slating Marvel Avengers Endgame, isn't it? So did you like the movie? No, it's like a kind of natural history museum about a group of creatures that I don't particularly have any affection for. Oh, right, yeah. Great comment. Thanks very much. You know, today I want to explore the complete Jesus in comparison to the superhero myth of Docetism. This, like, superhero, this kind of embodied shell or this, this apparition. Uh, and the first thing I want to say to you is that superheroes cannot suffer. Now, there's something really appealing about the idea about being unable to really suffer, isn't there? I think something in the human psyche says, wouldn't it be great if you just didn't have to suffer, if you just couldn't physically suffer? Now, a lot of what we do psychologically is with an end of suffering in mind. Many of our worst counter-behaviors are actually preventative actions against suffering. Anna Freud, Sigmund's daughter, was talked about the kind of counter-response, a psychological attempt, if you like, to fight the reality of our circumstances by creating a, a counter-reaction that would further defend us against pain. So many of our behaviors are about pain defense. We work really hard to avoid anything that might cause us to suffer, and that's partly why humans have been very, very successful biologically speaking because we see danger and we typically avoid danger. Why? Because we know that danger involves the potential for suffering. But what if pain had a purpose? What if suffering was necessary? Greek philosophy was already steeped in the idea of divine impassibility. This is the idea that God cannot experience suffering since he's outside human experience. 
So the Greeks were saying, look, you know, God cannot possibly suffer. Suffering is a kind of a weak state of human mortality. You know, they had really kind of genuinely unpleasant views of kind of human bodily fluids. You know, the Greeks saw everything as being kind of visceral and like blood and sweat, and it was all very baseline. They didn't like thinking about any of the sort of bodily habits of the humans. And the Greeks and the Romans actually developed fantastic toilets, better than some of the municipal toilets of this particular area. Um, and the reason was that they were so modest about bodily function. I, I sat on a Roman toilet somewhere in northern Israel, wasn't actually functioning at the time. Uh, but but you know, I was amazed about how beautifully this thing you know, was sculpted private loos you know, that were 2,000 plus years old because we want to hide physical function and elevate the mind. They want to show that actually we could leap to the divine if we really tried. We've just got to hide what makes us really human. The Muslim Quran even includes this idea in uh, Surah 4157 where it says, Jesus didn't really suffer, but Allah took him up to himself. You know, so even in Islam, Jesus, the Jesus that you all know, the son of Mary is referenced as one who didn't suffer but it was a, an illusion that Jesus suffered and actually God Allah pulled Jesus up to himself rather than allow him to suffer so you can see in Greek thought you know in Roman thought even in Islamic thought Jesus didn't really suffer and I wonder whether today we have the same sort of an idea we don't kind of like the idea that someone suffered for us because if they suffered for us, then we maybe owe them something. You know, if someone suffered for us, do we need to like say, hey, um, thanks for taking the hit on that one. Uh, or, hey, I know you like, you know, you suffered for me in that situation. I'd just like, I'd like to say thanks. It's uncomfortable as a thought, isn't it? If you knew that someone had suffered for you and then you were like, yeah, just going to blank that out of my mind because I, I don't, I don't want to be like responsible for having to like, do anything about that. In your own life, I wonder if anyone else has done something for you that you kind of, you feel indebted to them for, but you kind of quite like not to acknowledge it. Maybe you just don't like them that much. Maybe it's just an awkward family situation or you just feel uncomfortable about the fact that they did more than you expected. I wonder whether we try in a way to be a little docetist with Jesus and we think, ah, oh, I don't like the idea of a suffering God. Certainly don't like the idea of a suffering God for me. I didn't ask him to do that. Now am I supposed to feel bad about it? It's interesting, the Protestant view of the cross. This is really unusual upstairs, just to point that out. This is really unusual. This is really Catholic. Because in a Catholic church, you have Jesus still on the cross. And, and what the Protestant reformers were concerned about was the idea that we created, if you like, images which created a sort of idolatry, if you like, in the church. And in the Reformation, they typically went around smashing up images of Jesus and the saints because they were worried that we, we kind of create little idols on earth rather than leaning to heaven. But weirdly, we created new sorts of idols. And the sort of idol we created was the idol of the cross. That sounds a little radical. But the idol of the cross made the cross the thing to worship rather than the Christ of the cross. 
You know, people use the cross like a lucky charm. You're in the supermarket checkout. They don't really have so many of those these days. But, you know, you're like, oh, yeah, you've got a cross. You're a Christian. No, this is, this is just a bit of jewelry. No, that's actually a form of Roman execution. Don't tell me that. You've ruined this forever. Now, there's something about it. It's strange. Like, why would you hang a guillotine around your neck? Hey, look at my guillotine. It's lovely. I've got some electric chairs in my ears as well. Isn't it strange? Like we've made an idol of the method by which Jesus suffered and died, but have we made an idol of the Christ in our hearts? Or have we left him absent? My worry about our modern docetism is that we've forgotten the Christ and we've just kept hold of the cross. You know, the early church didn't even use the cross as a sign of the church, they used a fish, which I think is better. In Luke 17, 25, Jesus says, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Now, ironically, the Decetists were busy saying that God couldn't suffer, that Jesus must have been a mirage or a superhero, but Jesus himself says he must suffer many things and be rejected by a generation. If you think back again to Tim's talk last week, the rescue of Jesus requires two things. Expiation, that's the removal of the stain of sin, and propitiation, that's the justice element. That pays the price for the sin that's being committed. Isaiah 53, 5 says, but he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, and the punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we're healed. You think about that sacrifice, you think about that suffering, and suddenly you think, wow, that's really heavy. Now I'm really implicated. What am I supposed to do about that? How should I respond? If we apply that to the Docetic Jesus, who was just an apparition or a semblance of a human or a superhero character, in what way would Jesus be able to carry the wounds of our iniquity if he could not himself be wounded? Imagine it this way. Don't set this out well so you don't get diverted. But imagine, you know, like I'm guilty of some serious financial crime. They always seem like the like least hardcore crime, so let's play it out like that. I'm guilty of some serious financial crime, okay? And I'm in court, and, um, and I'm like feeling terribly guilty, and I've taken a lot of money from a lot of people, and now I'm implicated, and the judge is looking at me sternly, and there's a packed courtroom, and everyone wants justice, and they're all kind of tut-tutting, and I'm feeling terrible about myself. Uh, and then the, the judge comes to the sentencing, and he's saying, you know, I, I've got, you know, I want you to repay everyone that you owe. I'm thinking, oh, that's going to be really difficult, because I really haven't got any money left. And then I, I look ashen-faced and everyone can see that I've not got the money to repay and things are going to get really difficult for me. And then this benevolent old man up in the gallery shouts down to the judge, Judge, I really like this guy. I made this story up myself. <laughs> I really don't want him to, like, you know, to have to carry the burden of this great penalty. And I'd like to be able to deal with the penalty myself. Imagine my relief. I'm like, oh, benevolent old man. It's incredible. Thank you. Like, I'm so blessed. Anyway, the judge calls a recess and invites me and also the old man into his chambers. And the court recorder comes in and the clerk and the cashier. And they all stand around behind the judge. Now, everyone clapped us out of the courtroom because it's a really heartwarming story. And then... The judge looks expectantly at the man as the 
cashier opens up the checkbook, getting ready to like receive the money. And the old man smiles kindly back at the judge again and says, I love this guy and I want to pay all his fines for him, but I just don't have any money. Now imagine the situation. He wants to pay. He, he feels kindly. But he can't pay because he just hasn't got the ability to take the punishment. You see, a semblance or an apparition or even a superhero Jesus who cannot suffer cannot take the punishment. He cannot pay the price. He's just a mirage. How could justice be served on the cross? How's that going to work? Nailing on a ghost. You know, oh, you got down already. Oh, you floated away. How is, how, how, how is the propitiationary sacrifice going to be achieved if the Christ of the cross cannot suffer? You see, God knew this. He knew the cost when he made the decision. And he knew the cost knowing each and every one of us personally, saying it's for you. It wasn't that God tricked out justice. It's that God is justice. The irony of the docetic heresy is that in an attempt to make the Christian message more acceptable to Greeks and Jews, they remove the very aspect of it that makes him uniquely able to save. The docetists, they were busy trying to say, how can we get the Greeks involved in this amazing message? We need to change the message because the Greeks are not loving this. It doesn't work with their idea of a God who doesn't suffer. You know, how are we going to get the Jews involved in this? This is, this is kind of visceral stuff. This doesn't work with that idea of God as other. Let's change it. I've got friends who work in mission ministry at the moment who are talking about the idea of the son of God, this argument, the son of God. How can we reach certain people groups who don't like the idea of son of God? What do you do? Well, can we edit out son of God and make Christianity more palatable? No, you can't change it. Because that is how heresies develop. It's good intentions, but it's the wrong dynamic. Christ had to suffer in order for us to be set free. Secondarily, superheroes cannot comfort. You know, in 2016, I suffered this catastrophic spinal injury. And um, uh, I didn't know it was going to serve me so well in terms of sermon fodder. I might have been a little bit more enthusiastic about it at the time, had I known how useful it would go on to be. But... Um, you know, I, I, just, I can't really describe the pain, and I don't really like to think about the pain too much, but it was extreme pain. You know, I was sort of shaking in pain, and uh, it was like your whole body was sort of on fire all of the time. My feet felt like they were being held up against an electric flame, even though they were physically cold. They felt psychologically burning, burning hot, and it was so hard to describe. And, and as I was sort of struggling away at home, um, people from the church I was at came with lasagnas, Say, hey, I, we've heard that you're really unwell. We brought you a lasagna. It's that Christian thing to do, isn't it? Here's the lasagna. Oh, do you want the pot back? Yeah, please. Yeah, it's one of my favorite Le Creuset's. You know, you're like, oh, yes, I've only got catastrophic spinal pain. I'll make sure I write that down and deliver it to you as soon as I'm mobile. You know, there's something about it which is sort of awful. Can you not just give me the throwaway tin? Um, Anyway, sort of lined up of Tupperwares and Le Creuset's on the sideboard from all these lasagnas that my family were eating, and I was not really interested in. I've got to be honest, like the comfort I offered, it was sweet of them to do it, but the comfort I offered was, they offered me was minimal because they just could not relate to my pain. 
There was two people who helped me. One was a weird guy on the internet who'd had a worse injury than mine, and he was you know, a brilliant guy from America who decided to make a vlog of his pain, and watching him hurt really made me feel better about my general <laughs> discomfort. But the other guy was Jim Mulford, who comes here sometimes in the evening with Charlotte, his wife. And Jim had found a cancer in his spine, in his sacrum, uh, as he was just about to embark on a, a London to Paris bicycle ride, just like our guys from IGN. And he had a mandatory scan uh, through his healthcare provider before he could ride, and they found this cancer. And he had to have a, a really, really hardcore operation to remove it from his sacrum. And praise God, he's entirely well. But he had this really miserable spinal surgery within two weeks of my spinal surgery. And we sort of, when we were in rehab, we kind of walked around the river path like this. <laughs> Are you okay? Yeah, no, I'm fine. How's it going? Yeah, no, I'm all right. I'm comfortable at the moment. Good. Okay, great. Okay, then. We, we did this, like, for quite a long time. And, you know, but the thing about Jim was... I just knew he could comfort me. And actually, weirdly, he knew I could comfort him because he'd received comfort and I'd received comfort and we could share comfort with one another because we'd suffered in the same way. Our suffering had enabled our comfort. And actually, we walked that journey together and we became super close as a result. We were playing darts together at the men's social on uh, Thursday night, which was absolutely epic. You know, and it's so good to give thanks because you're like, wow, look at us now, <laughs> bullseye. Well, not quite, but... You know, the amazing thing about our God is that he offers us a comfort. And it's not a comfort that's born out of just long, distant sort of sympathy. It's born out of real empathy. It's born out of a real knowledge of suffering. Again, this is why the Christian message is so unique. A God who suffers and a God who can really comfort how can a superman really understand the suffering of climbing a steep hill with a heavy backpack? Hey, how's that going for you? Yeah, it's pretty easy. Just, you know, up I go. How can Wolverine understand the suffering of a, of a kind of a flesh wound when his fingers are going to melt back together again? It's like that, you know, how's, how's it going to work? I've watched all these superhero movies, and I can tell you there aren't many scenes when Spider-Man is gently comforting an old man who's lonely on a park bench. It's kind of weird because you can't see his mouth or eyes or anything. Like, thank you, old man. I hope you're okay. Let's hang out together. Or, or Thor has some heart-to-heart -heart with a, a, a brief parent. Or, or Catwoman weeps with someone who's just been diagnosed with cancer. I haven't seen any of those movies. They just don't exist. The reason they don't exist is if you haven't really suffered, how can you possibly offer genuine comfort? You're other. And yet God... He's both other and with us. Jesus, he was far more than some superhero ghostly presence. He would have been all action and no comfort. But Jesus is both holy action and entirely comfort. 2 Corinthians 5 says about Jesus, just as the sufferings of Christ flow over into our lives, so also through Christ our comfort. See how those two things beautifully pair together? Sufferings and comfort. And when we're suffering, we need to remember the Christ who suffered for our sake and the comfort that he can offer us in our lives. Incredible comfort. Not the comfort of some far off distant God or, or even some empty cross, some symbol of something else. But this Christ, the Christ who suffers. 
During the COVID pandemic, there were a couple of lovely images floating around titled The Real Superheroes. I'm not sure if you saw it, but they were nurses and doctors and even delivery drivers. I've never been so enthusiastic about delivery drivers. Actually, I was on a, I was on a, a really awkward, um, quite a big clergy call, and, um, and my delivery driver arrived, and I thought I'd um, switched off my video, but I'd actually unmuted my feed. And so I went to the back door and it was like, Mr. Amazon. I was like, hey, oh, thanks so much. You know, it's like wired up to my phone and I still had the thing. And there was all these big wigs on this. Yeah, thank you. You're the real hero. Yeah, great. Have a really good day. Stay safe. Yeah. And I was trying to be like really down with it. And then I heard in my ear this very senior clergy person, Will, um, I think you might be unmuted. I just spent sort of, you know, five minutes high-fiving the Amazon guy and like all of these clergy. You know, Isaiah's prophecy in 52 is titled The Suffering Servant because there is no servitude without suffering. And there's no servitude without suffering. In Mark 9.35, it uses the phrase servant of all because ultimately Christ came to serve, not to be served. The primacy, the centrality of the message is that he is servant of all. He's servant of you and me. He suffered, he can express comfort. And finally, superheroes can't love. It's one of those really weird things, isn't it? The obvious reality of a superhero movie is that no one really falls in love with a superhero. Think about your experience of all the superhero movies you've ever watched. It's like no one really ever falls in love with a superhero. Um, Superman... You can't really fall in love with Superman, can you? I mean, it's kind of weird. Hey, should we go for a walk? No, I'm just still here. I'm just walking. Come and why don't you walk next? It looks weird walking along with a cape and like red pants. Just taking the dog out for a walk along the river. Oh yeah, yeah, nice day. Yeah, yeah, red pants, a cape. I just thought, you know, wear it whilst I was walking my dog. It'd be so strange. Like Spider-Man again. Oh, let's go on a date. Oh, look into your eyes. Oh, then. So silvery and mysterious. I can't actually I can't see your mouth either. How's it going? Oh, you don't say anything. Oh, great. And you don't fall in love with Spider-Man. You, you know, Iron Man. Oh, give us a cuddle. Oh, it's a bit cold and hard. You know, do, do you have any... Is there anyone in there? It's a bit metallic. Your eyes are a bit like halogen lights. They're a bit bright. Can you turn them down? You know, you think about relationship with a superhero and you realize there's nothing to it. You can't fall in love with a superhero. And that's why all superhero movies have a great device in terms of revelation of the human. You know, if uh, Clark Kent is the person you fall in love with if you love Superman. And Peter Parker is the person you fall in love with if you like Spider-Man. And Bruce Wade is the person you fall in love with if you like Batman. And Diana Prince is the person you fall in love with if you like Wonder Woman. They all have a human device because everyone who writes superhero movies knows that you need a human to fall in love with. You just can't fall in love with a superhero. And what's the amazing thing about God is he loves us and he enables our love for him. Jesus was just a semblance. If he was just a, a mirage or a ghost, or if he was some sort of superhero character, oh yeah, I'm thankful to you, Superman, Super Jesus. I'm just like, I see you from a distance and I'm like, whoa, yeah, great, go super, super Jesus, wow, amazing. God doesn't allow us that luxury. Jesus was flesh and blood, he was human. 
You can really fall in love with Jesus as much as Jesus has fallen in love with you. You see, if God's mission was ultimately that the world would know his love and love him, choosing a superhero to do the work would be the most improbable thing he could ever do. The world would have admired Jesus, but no one would have loved Jesus. In 1 John 4, 8, it says, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. The essence of the Christian message is that God is so loving that he suffered and died and he can comfort you and me and he's so human that you can love him back. God didn't just demonstrate his love for us through Jesus. Jesus was love to us. He was love to those who encountered him on earth as well. I love John. Uh, He's so busy going around all the time. He's like, he's so like loved by Jesus and he loves Jesus back. So he just goes around calling himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. It's like such a, imagine me going around, yeah, I'm, I'm the guy who Louis loves. Like, it's my wife, by the way, if you're new. Yeah, like, hi, yeah, who are you? Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm the guy who Louis loves. It's like so presumptuous and weird, isn't it? It's quite weird. Maybe I'll do it for a while, just see if it annoys people. But John goes around going, yeah, I'm the, I'm the disciple that Jesus loves. Because he had real encounter with Jesus, real relationship with Jesus, a real sense of love for Jesus in the human Isn't it remarkable? Jesus wasn't a semblance. Jesus wasn't a mirage. Jesus really had breakfast with John. And John loved him for it and knew him personally, intimately. In John 15, 12, it says this, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. It's remarkable, isn't it? Real love. Superheroes can't love, but Jesus fully human, can really love you. And you can love him back. Jesus suffered. Jesus comforts. And Jesus loves. Jesus is fully human, and yet he's also fully divine. That's the complete Jesus. I'd love you to stand as we pray to him and seek encounter with him by his spirit. If you're new here, I just encourage you again, this is an opportunity to pray. We just, sometimes we pray sitting down, sometimes we pray standing up. But it's, just, it's a chance to actually engage with this Jesus we've been talking about. And I'll just lead you in prayer. Matt and the band are going to come and uh, they're going to play behind me. And we're going to move back into a time of worship. I'm going to pass over to you, Tim, in just a moment. But let's pray together. Jesus, we recognize that we slip into this idea that you are kind of myth, mirage, superhero, disconnected from our lives and tonight we want to reconnect with the real Jesus with the complete Jesus we recognize and we believe and we state in our hearts that you suffered for us you died for us you rose again and you can comfort us in our sufferings but also that you were so fully human that you can love us and you can be the object of our love and we pray tonight that you would draw near Even though you have ascended into heaven, we know that you can draw near and make your dwelling within our hearts. We pray for the hope that you offer us, the knowledge that we are not alone, but God is with us. Come, Holy Spirit of God, we want to just encounter you afresh tonight. Make yourself real in our lives.